From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Thursday, the 20th of January, 2022. After six months without a community case of COVID, we are now seeing sporadic community cases with clusters of both Omicron and Delta infections in Hong Kong. In our latest podcast, Dr. David Owens and Professor Ben Cowling discuss the current situation. They discuss the dilemma of a zero COVID strategy without a plan for exit, and they consider what a plan B may look like. They also discuss the cost of the public health policy on physical and mental health and hamsters. Hi, Ben. How's things? Uh, Hi, David. I'm actually in the UK at the minute. I I came back at Christmas and I'm planning to to stay here for a little bit longer and then come back to Hong Kong in in mid-February. Well, hopefully uh, things will be opening up then. Where do you think we're at at the moment? Obviously, after a period of no cases, we're really seeing a little outbreak at the moment, which I know we've spoken about this. We're both somewhat concerned about about the cases that are occurring at the moment. What what do you think is happening? Yeah, well, we had six months without any local cases, or almost, almost zero local cases, didn't we? And I think we knew that sooner or later the virus will get into the community. And unfortunately, now that's happened. Uh, and Omicron clearly poses a much bigger threat to us than previous strains. Even though it, it is a little bit milder, it poses a really big threat because it's so transmissible. Yes, and do you think we're going to be able to control the cases that we're seeing at the moment. There's been some discussions of the members of the expert committee about whether it was going to be done by Chinese New Year or or whether it was going to take a little bit longer. And I know we've both voiced concerns. I'm, I'm certainly concerned that the cases that we're seeing at the moment are tied to specific clusters, but there's really been quite a number of people on the outside of those clusters that have been in the community for some days. Do you think we're going to be able to control this one? I think it's going to be difficult. So at, at the time we're speaking, David, there's been a, a couple of potentially unlinked cases reported, including a Delta as well as Omicron. Those may get linked up, but it's really worrying when we detect cases in people who hadn't at least been under monitoring. I, I, ideally, the way that an outbreak would go is that initially, maybe you're surprised that there's some infection in the community, but then you trace all the contacts, you put them under quarantine or at least under surveillance, you you pick up all the secondary tertiary infections, and then ultimately the outbreak comes to an end because you manage to cut all the transmission chains. I I think we found that tough in the first two years of the pandemic. The second wave, third wave, and fourth wave, we recognized that contact tracing wasn't enough, and we needed quite stringent social distancing measures in the community. Remember, the schools were closed, people work at home, there's bans on, on even groups of four. It was down to groups of two at one point. Uh, so there was a lot of social distancing needed as well to stop transmission. And that was with the original COVID virus with a basic reproductive number somewhere in the range, maybe two or three, maybe two point something, three point something. We're now facing Omicron with a reproductive number much, much higher. And so we know that contact tracing is very unlikely to be enough, even though we do it really, really well in Hong Kong. I'm not surprised that we're identifying some unlinked cases uh, in in the last couple of days. Maybe those will be linked back. But if we find one or two, we know there's going to be others in the community. Unless we're very, very lucky and those other cases somehow don't spread, I I, I think we're going to hear about more and more unlinked cases in the the last two weeks of January coming up to Chinese New Year. I I really don't see the likelihood that this outbreak will be controlled uh, anytime soon, unfortunately. 
yes, I agree. And, and yeah, we both have argued for a long time that in the long term, zero COVID wasn't going to be sustainable. But it's important not to rewrite history here, isn't it? I mean, Hong Kong has done an incredible job, 200 or so deaths in, in, in comparison to, you know, we've seen what's happened in Europe and, and the US. So, you know, we have done an incredible job. But, you know, is it time to move on to a plan B, do you think? Is it time to start at least at least planning for the possibility that we're not going to be able to contain this? Because it, it is looking, as you say, to be highly infectious. And, you know, even if we do contain it, uh, there's going to be another outbreak. It's, you know, it's, this is nature, isn't it? It's biology. You can't borders are, are man-made constructs, really. You can't really. You can't really close them forever. So is, is it time for a plan B? Well, I, I think it would have been better if we thought about this over the last six months when, when we were having zero cases, but we knew there was a possibility for the virus to get back in. I'm a little bit... Um, worried about the, the current outbreak, particularly in, in, in the sense that the, the interventions so far haven't really been stringent enough to have a chance of controlling this particular outbreak. The contact tracing is excellent. The Department of Health have done an excellent job in, in trying to track down every possible transmission chain, but there's just likely to be too many. That with Omicron, we're aware that there can be transmission even with quite brief contacts. If, if you're unlucky, you could sit next to the case on the bus. And of course, no one knows who they sit next to on the bus. And generally, that won't happen. But, but Omicron is so transmissible. And, and we know that there are some cases who can, who can be super spreaders. So, so now I think we really have to think about what's next. Because even if we can get the current outbreak under control, which is going to be tough, uh, we'll still have the potential for more outbreaks in the future, whether those are coming from uh, arriving travelers and transmission in hotel quarantine. We've seen another case of that just in the last week, or whether there's other routes of infection uh, into the city. And I, I remember saying in the past that we, we know some of the risks, the quarantine hotels, the air crew, maybe the, the, the staff at the airport or quarantine hotels, but there's always other things that we haven't even thought of. And then this week, we've had such a, such a case of something we never even considered, which is an infected hamster potentially being accused of, of patient zero or hamster zero in, in an outbreak. And in the future, who knows if there'll be other other routes for the virus to find its way into the city as well. In the mainland, they've talked about contamination of frozen goods or even airmail. So I, I think it's very difficult to, to keep a virus like COVID, especially the Omicron variant, out of the community in the longer term. I, I'm a little, little bit frustrated sometimes when, when I I've, I've talked about the, the idea of transitioning away from zero COVID and then the counter argument being what about the, the, the large numbers of deaths elsewhere in the world, in, in Europe, in the US and so on. We don't want that. But, but if we can get the vaccine coverage to a high level, then that would be averted anyway. It's not a, it's not a fair comparison. Actually, I think for Hong Kong, the optimal strategy would be what we did in the first 18 months, zero COVID as much as possible for the first 18 months of the pandemic but then transition away. So we minimize over the longer time scale, the disruption, but also minimize the impact of COVID because we can, we can use vaccines, particularly in older adults. We know that they provide excellent level of protection against severe disease. Yes, we've discussed this, haven't we? I mean, I think it's important to explain that when, when you say that you know, zero COVID is not the, the right strategy, that, that doesn't mean we're advocating just open up the gates and let it let it burn through. I mean, the problem, 
I believe with zero COVID without a plan for exit is that it actually negatively impacts some of the decisions that you'd want in a zero COVID with a plan for exit, such as encouraging high vaccine rates, even maybe shifting the risk-benefit decisions about vaccinating low-risk individuals like like young children or even the the risk-benefits and the ethical decisions around mandates. Because if we... If we decide we're going to transition, and this, and, and this transition may be forced, mightn't it? I mean, if we if we can't control this process, it's not going to be long before the quarantine camps and the hospitals are not able to cope with the numbers of cases which are occurring, and then you know, we get, we're going to have a forced pivot. So it makes sense to me to at least start communicating what that is likely to be. You know, it, it's it's one thing to say we've got all our eggs metaphorically in the zero COVID basket, but what happens if, if 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 we're unable to control it? Do you think that's reasonable, or or would you see a different alternative? Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the big issues for me is the timing. Where if we if we really have a plan of when we might start to relax and transition away from the zero COVID strategy, then we can control the timing. We can say we want to get the vaccine coverage to to such a level with two doses or even with three doses, particularly in the elderly, and then we. That would actually minimize the impact of a COVID epidemic. Whereas if if the virus is the one that decides the timing, for example, if, if the current outbreak really can't be controlled, then the vaccine coverage isn't as high as we would have liked it to be. And I I think if we choose the the, the timing, it's like the, the general in battle choosing the battlefield to to his own advantage. So so for me, that that would be one major reason to think about planning an exit. But of course, I know the government is still very, very keen to get case numbers down to zero, to to maintain them then at zero for a time, to have open border with the mainland. And I, I acknowledge there's enormous economic advantages to having quarantine-free travel with the mainland. And so I, I, I can see why that's a desirable outcome. I, I still worry, though, and I said this uh, for, for many months now, that, that zero COVID is, is going to be fragile for Hong Kong, that even though we had six months at zero, all of a sudden we've got an outbreak in the community and it's going to cause disruption for quite some time. If we get down to zero again, we'll still be concerned that that we're, we have a fragile zero again and, and any time another outbreak could start. Yeah, sure. I completely agree. But again, it, it brings us around to this difficult question, which is what do we do if we can't control this? I mean, as you say, this is a highly transmissible infection. We've got lots of experience from other countries. We have a certain degree of social distancing at the moment, but it looks like there's already a, a few cases in the schools. You know, it, this is not something I'm wishing for, but it's 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 at least something we have to think about and game and plan for. Yeah. It could be that we see a rapid uptake in cases over the next one, two, three weeks. And if that does happen, the numbers at which the current policy of quarantining every contact and hospitalizing every infected case, that breaks down at relatively low numbers, doesn't it? I mean, once you're getting above 20, 30 a day. I I think quarantine would be the major concern uh, because for every case at the moment, we're quarantining tens, even sometimes more than 100 contacts. And it's the quarantine space that runs out first. Actually, for cases, many of the cases are very mild. They don't actually need to be in the North Lantau Hospital or another hospital. They can be uh, managed in the Asia World Expo field hospital. And I, I think more field hospitals could be opened. That That's relatively straightforward. So I'm not so worried about the number of cases, even if we still choose to isolate every case 
even the mild and asymptomatic cases, I think the capacity for that will be okay for a while longer. It's the quarantine that I think will be an issue. And then, of course, quarantine is one of the ways that we slow down transmission. If suddenly you can't quarantine close contacts, then you lose the advantage of that particular public health measure and you need to make up for it with with other measures. So in the community at the moment, we have primary school closures. Some people are working at home. Some businesses are choosing to work at home. And I think, as far as I know, one of the major drivers for that is actually business continuity. If there was to be a case in their in their office, that they don't want the entire office to have to go to Penny's Bay. Um, but as, as time goes on, and maybe by the end of January, I think there'll be a lot more businesses working at home because of of COVID in terms of re- reducing the potential for transmission in the community. But uh, even if we go as far as, as the, the measures in the third and the fourth wave, with closure of secondary schools as well, and most businesses working from home and bans on even groups of four uh, and restaurants down to 50% capacity and so on, I, I, I think that barely controlled transmission in the fourth wave, I'm not sure it's going to be enough to stop Omicron. So I have been thinking about what could be recommended to the government to to try and get this outbreak under control and get back down to zero. And it's actually difficult. We understand that in the mainland, they're able to do it, but we're not following the the mainland strategy in in terms of controlling outbreaks at the moment. It's very clear what what happens in the mainland where there's an outbreak, whether it's in uh, Xi'an or Tianjin or, or whichever other city has an outbreak. The cases that initially trigger the outbreak are isolated, their contacts are quarantined, and then the, the, the whole district of a city, or even sometimes the whole city, is locked down. Almost everybody has to stay at home, and there's repeated rounds of mass testing. And it's not the lockdown itself that stops transmission. It's the testing and the contact tracing. And the lockdown is just um, like in a, in, in a playground game, asking everybody to, to stand still while you count them or whatever. That the reason for the lockdown is just so that that everybody can be tested and it slows down transmission while while this is all going on. But uh, I, I know some experts have been talking about more stringent measures such as stay-at-home orders in Hong Kong, but I don't think that would be enough to actually stop transmission. It's the mass testing and 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 mass isolation of cases and mass contact tracing and quarantine of contacts that that's really the the key measure in the mainland. And the, the chief executive in Hong Kong has said she's she's worried that it might not be feasible in Hong Kong. What do you think about the possibility of a shift towards rapid testing? We saw this used in in the UK and to a lesser degree in, in the US. Certainly in Europe, it was used a lot, and it, it tended to be introduced in those places after the epidemic had already escape didn't say. I mean, I've looked at some of the literature on this, and it, it seems to be helpful, at least to some degree, in in, in breaking transmission chains. It, obviously, it's not it's it's its sensitivity and specificity isn't really high enough for a zero COVID strategy. But at some point, if we do start to transition, it may be useful, whether it's in screening key workers or people who are symptomatic before they return. Have you had a think about? Using this in in Hong Kong at all? Uh, I'm not sure that do-it-yourself testing is is a good fit with a zero COVID strategy because when we do rapid testing, we we do it by ourselves and we're the ones that know the result. Whereas with a strict zero COVID approach, really the the, the government or the Department of Health want to know who's infected and who's not and would would, want to know the results of, of any tests that are done. 
I think if we were to transition away from the zero COVID approach, it would make a lot of sense to provide rapid tests. In the UK, they provide them for free. And, and then you can use the rapid test to know when you're infected, when you should self-isolate. And a lot of things are left up to individual decisions and individual responsibility for being a good citizen, rather than the government being in control and deciding who does and who doesn't have to, to do various things. So it's a, it's a kind of different a different way of doing things. But I, I don't think rapid tests would be a very good fit, though, with a strict zero COVID strategy. No, I, I agree with that. I'm, I think that, um, I don't know, maybe maybe we are, it's not often that we disagree on too much, Ben, but maybe we're disagreeing on this one because I'm, I'm sort of of the view that, you know, we are probably going to have to transition from zero COVID whether we want to or not. You know, I, I, I tend to feel that, that whatever the political imperative is, the virus and nature might make the decision for us. And, and that's really the, the case I'm, I'm, I'm asking here is, you know, what does a plan, what does a plan B look like? Is, uh, have, have we actually, you know, thought about what happens if we can't get down to, to zero? Because, I mean, it is a possibility, isn't it? It is a possibility that this uh, Omicron escapes and within the next one or two weeks, we are saying, look, we just haven't got enough quarantine spaces. We're going to have to change plan. Well, so I, I, I agree with you that I think we, we need a plan B. And certainly I, I would advise the government to think now about transitioning away from zero COVID. I've, I've been quite consistent on that. So I don't think we disagree, David. Um, I, I would advise them to really get ramping up vaccine coverage in older adults preparing for a lot of infections in the coming weeks. But I'm aware that, that the government is still very keen to, to get COVID under control. And, and I can also think about how that might be achieved, even though I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's going to be feasible. And I, I, I'm not sure it's really um, maybe in, in some sense worth it, because even if we can have an extreme level of disruption in the community for a month or two and, and somehow get case numbers back down to zero, it could all happen again within within days or weeks of, of getting to zero. We could have a, a, another outbreak somehow in, in the city and this can go on and on and on. So zero COVID is, is going to be a fragile strategy for Hong Kong. Um, if, if we're planning a transition away from that, uh, which of course we can start any time now planning a transition away from it, I would say getting vaccine coverage up, particularly in, in elderly homes, would be absolutely critical. And then having clear plans and advisories for, for people who do get COVID, if they're not going to be isolated uh, in, in a hospital, then to self-isolate for a certain period of time. And there's there's been actually some news about that recently with, with the US and I think the UK as well, changing their recommendation from maybe a 10-day isolation down to a five-day isolation because the second five days, the, the day six to 10, there's really not too many people who are still contagious at that point. And it's maybe not justified in public health terms to, to have such a long isolation. And also recommendations for quarantine. If, if a family member has COVID, what should the, the rest of the family do? And it, that would be quite a shift away from the current policies where, where people don't make their own decisions. They're, they're told what to do by, by the Department of Health that, that such an, you know, certain people have to go to quarantine and other people maybe don't, but have to self-monitor and go for testing and so on. Yes, I think maybe using the zero COVID with and without exit rather than agree or disagree. It, it, I think what you've given a good example there that the two strategies really are very, very different. And any transition is going to be associated with both change, but also a lot of, I think, inevitably some confusion. I mean, we know that with 
Omicron in particular, the greatest threat to health systems internationally has been the need for healthcare workers to isolate during the infection. It, it, it burnt through so aggressively and so quickly that many healthcare workers in South Africa, in the UK, in Europe, in the States were, were off sick, and this almost collapsed the health system. Well, I, I would say it's not, not only healthcare workers, right? It's a lot of key workers. Uh, in, in a lot of different industries, if they're out for, for 10 days. I, th- I think at Heathrow, there were problems with flight delays because there weren't enough ground staff because a lot of them were off sick in one particular week. And and you could imagine in in the food delivery chains and, and other key industries as well, that uh, having, having a, a 10-day isolation could lead to a lot of disruption when there's a lot of people infected at the same time. Yes, very much so. And, and, and yeah, key workers, a better description. Uh, to to think from a healthcare worker just for a moment uh, purely personally not because it's not, not because it's any more important or more valid but something maybe i can you know give a a personal reflection of uh, within our own organization i'm sure with all the organizations in hong kong that deal with uh, all businesses in hong kong um, the greatest threat to business contingencies at the moment is uh, quarantine um, all the plans are around quarantine and Within our own uh, practice, uh, I mean, I spend hours every week looking at risk mitigation strategies. We have to triage uh, potential infections, see them in a separate room, use PPE, wash down, clean the room afterwards. Um, all of our staff are, are continually at, at un, under the threat of quarantine if, if there's a case in, in the clinic. We had those doctors from the um, emergency department in Prince of Wales who, who treated somebody in an accident who then subsequently got sent to quarantine because they tested positive. Um, and, and I'm not advocating for special treatment for, for medical staff particularly, except to say that um, the, the, the thing that is threatening the integrity of our system at the moment is the public health restrictions. And, and this is going to have a negative impact on on, on health, I you know, I ran some numbers. Medical staff in our in our practice have been in quarantine for six months over the last eighteen months or two years. That's a lot of healthcare that is not going to be you know, reproduced and and uh, gained back. And 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 you know, I think in terms of many, you know, we're fortunate in having a, a lot of people in in our group who can cover for each other. But you know, there will be single handed practitioners in in working in Hong Kong and. It's natural to, to try to screen and to stop people coming to the clinic when they're sick. And, and when, you, when you have a policy which is discouraging doctors from seeing ill people, that's a recipe for, for problems. Um, and so that's a sort of example of an unintended consequence of a public health strategy, which is going to pivot and shift such that within weeks or months or whenever it happens over a period of several weeks, we're going to go from being terrified about getting locked up in quarantine to overrun with sick people. I mean, you know, I and all the doctors I work with know we're going to get COVID. We're all going to get it. It's just a question of when. And so we've got this shift between, yeah, zero COVID as a strategy has 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 an impact on on every system. I'm just giving an example of a of of that of a health system and it's going to transition from quarantine being the biggest risk to sickness in key workers being the risk um, and that that 
transition is going to need some communication. It's going to need some mitigation, and it's going to need some planning. I think. So I think we 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 need to start talking about a plan B. I feel quite strongly about that. No, I I agree with you, and I think I I could even broaden your your assessment of the impact of of the zero COVID policy. So of course there's going to be people that have missed their cancer screenings or missed their surgeries or or missed their their consultations because they found a lump and they want to get it checked out and they, they couldn't do it for some reason. And that delays everything. And and and, and in the coming years, there'll be more uh, cases of, of cancer detected at, at later stages because of the impact right now. Uh, that's not, of course, not only an issue in Hong Kong, it's an issue around the world, because in a lot of parts of the world, there's been serious disruption with um, with, with COVID. I, I, I know in the UK, I, uh, a professor of public health actually unfortunately died in 2020 because she'd missed her initial surgery because the hospital had to close for for, for some other reason with COVID. But beyond that, I'd I'd also like to mention that there's there's a lot of other impact, particularly on mental health, where uh, I think there's a lot of fatigue now with with the the social distancing measures being, um, and also the the, the travel restrictions that a lot of people have been waiting to to visit their family overseas and, and, and been hoping that that, uh, that the, the travel measures will be lifted, but now it's an, it's into the third year, and I know it's very tough for some people. And of course, there's people who've been quarantined, um, uh, some people that have been isolated for prolonged periods of time because their their viral load doesn't come down to zero very soon, and so there, there's so many different consequences of of, uh, of of the policies here. But of course, that's not to say that that in the, the past eighteen months those were, were bad policies because you can look at the impact of covid in in other parts of the world i think in hong kong we've done relatively well in the first 18 months maybe even the first two years of the pandemic but uh i think if we continue with these policies for 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 another year two years three years that that's going to be a lot more impact when we could have had this exit plan and gradually transitioned away from zero covid but keeping the impact of covid to a low to a low level, and and I'm constantly checking the situation in Singapore because I think that's maybe the best model for us to follow, of keeping COVID under control until vaccine coverage is at a high enough level, particularly in the elderly, and then gradually step by step relaxing public health measures. Uh, in Singapore, they haven't only relaxed; they've they've brought back in some measures that they'd previously relaxed, like the vaccine travel lanes. Um, but I think they're they're plan is to progressively relax more and more, but to keep a very close eye on, on the situation with COVID so that within maybe six months or at least within a year, they can essentially return to normal in the community without having had a major impact of, of COVID infections and disease and probably coming out with, with the best overall strategy over the entire course of the pandemic. Yeah, I very much agree that we, we have done very well, and all public health interventions are a balance, aren't they, between the impact of the disease on on individuals and populations and the cost and the impact of the public health measures on individuals and populations. And uh, I, I, I totally agree that, you know, if we look at the league table, the difference between the countries that have eliminated and the countries that didn't eliminate is really, really quite stark. If we look at uh, total mortality rates in Hong Kong, China, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, it, they're, they're much, much lower than those in the countries that, that let this burn through. So um, we, we have done very well, and I very much agree with you that Singapore 
another one is maybe Australia to follow because I think both those countries are to you know to an extent infection naive and both will be transitioning just really with the immun- immunity from vaccinations um Singapore in a planned way Australia maybe maybe less planned so um those two will be interesting to look at um and also some interesting data from Chile uh, the, the what what do you think about the the, the Sinovac vaccine that it it looks like you know the studies that suggest that Sinovac is not as effective when we measure antibodies as a surrogate marker, but the effectiveness data from Chile looked quite promising. I thought. What, what have you any thoughts on that, Ben? Yeah, I, I, I think we recognise that Sinovac is not all that good at preventing infections, but it is very good at preventing severe disease and death from COVID. And so, if you want to look at vaccine effectiveness against severe disease, I think Sinovac is actually pretty good. the The advantage of the mRNA vaccines is that they sometimes also prevent infections, whereas maybe Sinovac doesn't do that so well. But it, if the objective is to reduce the overall impact of COVID on the healthcare system, and that means reducing hospitalizations, reducing intensive care admissions, reducing deaths, then actually Sinovac's doing doing a reasonable job. And I think. If we did an assessment globally of how many lives have been saved by all the different vaccines, I think I think AstraZeneca might be the number one, but I think Sinovac would be right up there in terms of lives saved because it's, it, it does, a, does a reasonable job at, at saving lives. Yes, and so the T-cells are, are working. The, maybe, the, maybe the antibody levels after the booster are, are, are better than we thought. So I guess we always like to finish on, a, on, a, on an optimistic note. Let's maybe congratulate and thank on behalf of the whole community, the incredible job that's been done by the uh, the contact tracers and the and the people in the in the in the CHP and the health department, because it is truly an extraordinary job to uh, to keep a, a handle on 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 the outbreak as as has happened so far. And looking forwards, we'll both watch carefully the data from Singapore and Australia. And and although the Australian system is under some pressure, it, it's I, I'm. Cautiously optimistic, I would say, Ben, that the Singapore and Australia look like it's going to be possible to transition from zero COVID to living with COVID in a, in in, a, in an infection naive population, and it looks like Sinovac is is effective in protecting health systems, and and so we just need to get as many of the elderly and vulnerable as we possibly can vaccinated. Would that seem a fair positive assessment? Yeah, maybe I could leave you with one more thought as well, that in the early days of the pandemic, we had the the original virus from Wuhan, which had a certain degree of transmissibility and severity. And over time, the virus has changed. It, in general, viruses will will change a little bit in response, particularly to immunity in the population, and try to find ways to infect people that have got some immunity. And also in some cases, maybe find a way to be more contagious, because if you can be more contagious, you can infect more people, then you, you can do better than maybe the other strains. And so we've seen over time, the alpha variant, and then the delta variant, and then the Omicron variant becoming progressively more transmissible. There's no particular reason for viruses to become more or less severe, that, that there's no selection advantage, particularly with, with a virus like COVID, that's typically very, very mild anyway. There's no selection advantage to, to being more severe or less severe. I think we're lucky that Omicron is a little bit less 
intrinsically severe. One estimate is maybe 25% less severe intrinsically. And of course, we have vaccines available now as well. Um, I, I think places like Singapore and, and Australia are now transitioning away from zero COVID. They're facing the challenge of dealing with Omicron, which is very transmissible, but at least it's not so severe on the individual level. And I, I, I'd certainly kind of hope that in the future there isn't the next variant being just as transmissible or even more transmissible, but getting back some of that original severity, because that would mean it, it would be even more difficult to, to, to combat, particularly thinking about exit from zero COVID. I, I know there's one possible scenario where, where mainland China just waits out the virus until somehow it changes and, and becomes milder and milder and milder over time. And then it's a common cold. And then they, they can almost exit from zero COVID without any serious exit wave. But I don't think we can count on the virus doing that. And the next variant could be milder. It could also go the other way and be more severe. So actually exiting in, in the first half of 2022 may not be a bad idea in, in the sense of doing it when Omicron's around. It is more transmissible. Uh, it, it can be severe in some cases, but it's, uh, it's milder than the previous viruses that circulated. And if we can get vaccine coverage to a very high level in our elderly, a very high level, then I think that the impact wouldn't actually be too much. Well, a few months ago, I asked you whether Delta might be the booster dose for the world. And maybe I got that wrong. Maybe it's Omicron. And on that note, we'll, uh, we'll say goodbye and uh, enjoy your time in the UK. And I hope the planes are flying by the time... You're ready to come back in February. All the best. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you, David. See you then. Bye. As always, the links to the papers in this podcast, including further articles expanding upon the issues discussed, are available on our website in both English and Chinese at www.otmp.com. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And please feel free to comment. Thank you for listening.